All right, you can turn with me again to John chapter 17. Uh, John chapter 17, we'll be looking at the middle portion of, of John 17 and the high priestly prayer of Jesus, beginning in verse 6 all the way down to verse uh, 19. Uh, I want to just mention a couple things, uh, one thing really in particular as we begin. Uh, it's in your bulletin, but I want to say a word of thanks, and I hope you'll thank uh, Jeff Shepard for serving the last couple years uh, as one of our elders. He is rotating off for a sabbatical year. He also just retired on Friday. So you can thank him for serving as an elder here uh, these last few years, and you can congratulate him on his retirement. But don't ask him about his plans yet. He's still working on those. So don't stress him out. He's, he'll have a plan. Don't worry. Uh, but thank you, Jeff, for serving. Uh, joy to serve with you. Jeff is one of those brothers uh, that is not only going to be there, but he's going to be prepared, uh, ready uh, to engage with whatever we need to engage with in whatever meeting we have. And so super grateful for him. Uh, allow me to pray uh, just briefly again, and then we'll look at John 17, beginning in verse 6 together. Would you pray with me? Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we have the opportunity now to, to lean in and listen in as Jesus prays for his disciples then and by extension for us today. What an encouragement it is to hear others pray for us. And what an encouragement awaits us now this morning as we hear our Savior praying for us. Use this passage now to encourage us, to strengthen us. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. In my uh, humble and limited opinion, I think all the great action movie franchises have a basic kind of sequence, basic kind of key thing, which is something needs to be done, right? There's a mission. And someone is going to be sent to do it. Now, you can fill in the blank with whatever franchise is your favorite, and I think that'll be true of it. Something needs to be done, and someone is going to be sent uh, to do it. And then there's the spins on this, right? So what needs to be done will change. Sometimes he won't be sent, but he'll send himself out of a sense of obligation, right? But basically, something needs to be done, and someone needs to be sent to do it. That's what's happening. That's what makes a good, a good action movie. My brother and I grew up watching, watching a lot of reruns. Um, and uh, one of the series that we liked watching, some of you will remember it, some of you will have seen it on TV, and some of you will think it's only a movie franchise, but no, it was a TV franchise first, Mission Impossible. The classic TV show, Mission Impossible. And uh, you, you remember, right, the fuse was lit, and then the music would start, and each episode would begin the same, there'd be this tape recorder, that he'd receive, it'd be an envelope with maybe some pictures, some information that he would need, some other critical mission documents. He would press play, and the recording would begin, begin, good evening, Mr. Phelps. Your mission, Jim, should you choose to accept. And then he would give the mission, this voice on this tape recorder, and then it would always end, as always, should you or any of your IM force be caught or killed, the secretary will disavow any knowledge of your actions. This tape will self-destruct in five seconds. Good luck, Jim. And then the episode began, and you knew, right? You were ready. And then what happens next, right? He goes and he looks at, okay, who could I have on this mission? I'm going to identify my team, and then we're going to pull the team together. And then they have a planning meeting, and then 
man, by that point, you know how the rest of the episodes go. It's just, how are they going to pull it off? How meticulous is their plan? What creative scheme will they use to accomplish the seemingly impossible mission? Uh, Ian and I, my brother, uh, we, just, we just love these shows. Uh, and it was all different versions of them. Um, and they all follow this, this pattern, right? Something needs to be done and someone is going to be sent or a team is going to be sent to do it. Fairly predictable, but very satisfying. They find a way. Maybe it's through skill or the gifting of the team. That would allow them to have special guests on different episodes, right? You have a special guest. Maybe it was perseverance. Maybe an accident that worked in their favor. Surprisingly, they'll find a way. They finish the mission. Any failures kind of all work towards accomplishing the inevitable success. And then at the end, right, the team gathers they're relieved, mission accomplished, and, and the credits roll. Plug it into any number of movies, any number of shows, any number of series. That's the recipe. John 17. Let me make a little connection here now that I have your attention. It's the night before the cross. Jesus had just given his final words to his disciples. He's soon going to send them out on a mission. He's going to say over in chapter 20, maybe you want to turn there, John 20, verse 21, he says, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. So between Jesus' prayer in John 17 and Jesus' commissioning of his disciples in John 20, 21, Jesus accomplishes his mission. And the heart of Jesus' mission was this, the cross. The cross, resurrection, his soon return to glory. That was Jesus' mission. That is why he was sent. That was what he was set apart for, to be an atoning sacrifice. And so when Jesus prays for his disciples, now in John 17, he sets them apart for a mission. Jesus' mission accomplished will be the heart of their mission. It's the heart of our mission, right? The proclamation of the good news of what Christ has done. That's what we are to do. So mission impossible, or any other action series, is helpful, but mostly as a contrast. Jesus completes his objective. It is finished. With Jesus, it's always mission accomplished. There's no suspense, only success. And our mission is something we do. But our doing, at the very heart of our doing, what we have on the banners, glorifying God by making disciples of all nations, at the very heart of what we are seeking to do in glorifying God by making disciples of all nations, the very heart of our mission is what he has already accomplished on the cross. So between his prayer for them now and his commissioning them, he accomplishes mission and then sends them out. To proclaim his finished work. To proclaim his saving reign. So our mission doesn't rest on our skill. It doesn't rest on our creativity. No, he gives us his spirit. He gives us the message. He promises to go with us. To work through us. And yet, with all of that being true, we come to John 17 and the mission does not feel inevitable. It's not marked by kind of passivity and you got this. No, it's marked by perseverance. 
enduring, setting yourself apart from the world who will oppose you and keep going. Do you see that? You, you expect, okay, Jesus, mission accomplished. We're going to have mission accomplished. We got this. And, and there's some of that, but it doesn't feel inevitable. It almost feels a little perilous. These disciples? Us? Us? Sinners like you and me? Timid? Frail? Fearful? We? It doesn't feel inevitable at all. So Jesus prays. He prays. Before we see his two requests in our passage here, which goes from 6 to verse 19, he, he gives a long description of the disciples. Maybe you would think through, what would Jesus pray? What do you think Jesus would pray for you, for his disciples? This morning I want to look at verses 6 through 19 in just three questions. Who, why, and what? Who, why, and what? Who does Jesus pray for? Why does Jesus pray for them? What does Jesus pray for them? Who, why, and what? And I think we'll see these as we go through this passage together. So point number one, who does Jesus pray for? We're going to see this in chapter 17, where we are here, especially verses 6 through 8. Well, we know who Jesus is going to pray for. We talked about it last week. I already told you. It's his disciples. It's the eleven. Right? That's who he's going to pray for. So look at verse 6. I have manifested your name to the people whom you have given me out of the world. Yours they are, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. We say, well, who, who is that? Well, jump down to verse 20. He says, I do not ask for these only, referring to the 11 that are hearing him pray, but also for those who will believe in me through your word. So this middle section, he's praying for his disciples, these 11. Yet as Jesus describes them, we're going to realize he's describing every follower of Christ. He's describing, by extension, us. He's praying for them and for us. So we want to look at his description and see how Jesus, sorry, who Jesus here is praying for. His disciples, Jesus says, are those who know his teaching and believe it. And trust in it and obey it. So Jesus' disciples believe Jesus' teaching. This is like Christianity 101. Jesus' disciples believe Jesus' teaching. They trust and obey. They believe and they keep. They receive and then they follow. So look at the end of verse 6. They have kept your word. He's talking about his disciples. They're word keepers. They're obedient. Look down at verse 8. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and come to know the truth, that I am with you, and they have believed that you sent me. So they've kept the word, they've received the word, they've trusted and obeyed Jesus' words. So they're not disciples of some sort of an idea or ideal, but of a king who's given instructions of course, we know that these disciples here don't really get the fullness of Jesus' teaching. They don't grasp everything that they're going to get after the cross and resurrection. We understand that. But they do believe that Jesus' teaching is from God. That's very clear in our passage. Look at verse 7. Now they know that everything you have given me is from you. 
we don't talk like that. We can get bogged down in that kind of language. But there's an emphasis on source. Jesus is saying, they know, these disciples, they know that what I say is what you say. There's an authority that's been established. Working out the details of the identity of the Messiah or the necessity of the cross and resurrection, they have not yet fully done. But they get this. They, they know God gave the Son words. So Jesus is saying, I'm not praying for kind of disciples in name only, nominal Christians. I'm not praying for the crowd that's been following me off and on. Jesus is praying for true Christians, true disciples. And true disciples receive Jesus' words as from God and keep his word. We could just step back and say, okay, well, being a Christian isn't just a label. It isn't just a belief system. It's also a lifestyle. It makes demands on you and I and how we live. It's not a philosophy in that sense that you can just kind of ascribe to. Jesus demands, he makes those demands on how you live, on how I live. It affects all of life. So Jesus' ethic, the way that he teaches here we ought to live, is not like an a la carte menu. You kind of pick a few items off of it, create your own adventure kind of thing. Where the disciples can kind of choose what they like and leave the rest. Okay, I'll, I'll take the community aspect, but I'll leave the sexual ethic. Or I'll take the security and the comfort. Oh, I'll take some eternal life, sure, but the risk-taking, the mission part, I'll leave that. No. Jesus' teaching here is a full-course meal. It's curated for our good, and it's to all be received with joy. We feast on all the courses. That's what true disciples do. That's who Jesus prays for. They take it all in, knowing that costly obedience is the only road to the kind of joy that Jesus is going to talk about when he gets down to verse 13. But notice again, Jesus prays for his disciples, and his disciples then are described by their relationship to Jesus' words as God's words. So let me kind of make that more concrete and directed at us. True disciples are people of the book. True disciples are people of the book. So you should be examining yourself now. True disciples are people of the book. I didn't say that all true disciples are readers. By any normal use of the term a reader, I'm not one. Now, can I read? Yes. Am I a reader? No. I, I, I have never been. Uh, when I was growing up, going to my Christian school, my mom read to me to get me through lit class. We'd sit on the couch, she would read me my lit books. Uh, when I was in Bible college and in seminary, if a part of the grade was for reading, I would often just know I'm not going to get 100% of that. I'm just, it's very unlikely that I'm going to finish all my reading in all my classes. I'm a slow reader. I get words confused. I don't particularly enjoy it. Now you say, Pastor, it seems like you're prepared every Sunday. It's a discipline of love. I love to learn. I love God's word. So I read to study, yes, but you send me on a vacation and I'm going to go for a walk and not sit with a book. That's just the way I am. So 
True disciples are people of the book. That doesn't mean every one of you, I'm certainly not, have to be kind of a reader where you're just like, man, I just love sitting down. I was reading in Second Chronicles the other afternoon. It was great. It doesn't have to be you. It's, it's actually certainly not me. Now, again, I love God's word. I think as I read Psalm 119, the psalmist testimony is my testimony by God's grace. But I'm not a reader. And I want to just speak to what maybe the majority of you that would think of yourselves as just not readers. Whether it's the Bible or other things, you're just not readers. I want to give you three just encouragements. Call them tips, call them whatever you want. Three encouragements on how you can be someone who, like Jesus' true disciples here, is marked by an embrace of the word, embrace of God's word. So, first, you don't have to read the Bible in a year. You may never read the whole Bible in a year. But here's what you can do. You can reread a small portion of the Bible every day for a month. So take maybe a short book of the Bible in the New Testament A fair number of them you can read in its entirety in less than 15 minutes. Or maybe you take even a particular chapter or two and you read it today and then tomorrow you don't go on to the next chapter. You don't read the next book. You reread what you read yesterday and you do it 30 times in a row. Hmm. What will happen if you do that? Here's a few things that will happen. I can give testimony because this is how I often read. You will learn to meditate, and you may accidentally memorize some of God's Word. You won't even know it's happening. You will begin to remember what you read later in the day. Maybe you struggle with that. Try rereading what you read again and again and again. And you know what else will happen? Whatever portion of Scripture that is, you will own that. Maybe for the rest of your life, but certainly for months to come. You will know it inside and out. So, so maybe consider that. Maybe consider rereading a smaller portion of Scripture every day for a month. After you've done it for 30 times, then move on to something else. That's tip number one. Tip number two for the non-readers. How can we as true disciples be people of the book? Tip number two is listen. Listen to the Bible. There's apps There's CDs. There's lots of ways to do this. So when I arrived at Northland at Bible College, I knew there was going to be classes, these survey Bible classes that were going to require me to read the Pentateuch, to read the historical books. And I knew, I knew it just wasn't going to happen. So what did I do? I bought CDs of the Bible being read. At that point, I spent over a hundred bucks. Now you can get it free on any app you want, right? Uh, But I spent legit money for me back in that day to have the CD. And I brought a Sony Discman. Do you remember these? Yeah, I got a couple nods. I had a Sony Discman, and I would load in my car. I couldn't speed it up, couldn't slow it down, none of those features. But I could listen to God's Word, and I could follow along, and it kept me moving. And I was able to get through large sections of God's Word through listening to it. That's a great way as a non-reader to get through God's Word and to be a person of the book. Listen to God's Word. Third, Pick a time and a place and prepare to listen or read God's word well. So make it regular. Find a time, find a place free from distraction. 
If you have young kids, it's probably early or late, right? So it's not while they're awake, basically. Before they get up, after they're in bed. Put your Bible there, maybe a devotional or another resource there. Have a plan. So maybe you're rereading, maybe you're listening, but you have a time you're going to do it. You have a place you're going to do it. Brothers and sisters, let's be people of the book. Second question, why does Jesus pray for them? This is verses 9 through 11. Why does Jesus pray for them? He gives three reasons. We're going to go through these fairly briefly. This is the shortest point. He gives three reasons for praying for them. But look first at verse 9. It's real clear here that he's beginning to distinguish here. He's distinguishing his disciples from the world. We'll talk more about that in a minute. Look at how verse 9 begins. I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. He said, I'm praying for those whom the Father has given to me. I'm praying for the true disciples. I'm praying for my own. Which leads us to our first reason. Why does Jesus pray for them? Point number two, reason number one, they belong to the Father. Jesus prays for his disciples because they belong to the Father. The first job, I think, if we could put it this way, of every Christian is not to know who you are, but to know whose you are. It's not know yourself, it's know your God. Your identity isn't to be created, doesn't need to be discovered, it is received And specifically, it is received by our relationship with God. Here, I think Jesus is praying, and certainly John is recording this, so that his prayer might be heard. So that his disciples, even us today, might be encouraged by this simple truth. You see it there at the end of verse 9. You belong to the Father. If you're a Christian, you belong to the Father. Look at verse 10. All mine are yours, Jesus says, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. What a comfort. God's people, Christians, don't simply know Jesus or even love Jesus. They belong to the Father and to the Son. They're his property. They bear his stamp of ownership. They're redeemed, bought by the blood of Christ. This is what the Bible says to true Christians. You are not your own. You are Christ's. Christians can say, we are the Lord's, a people for his own possession. What a comfort this is, right? If if you're given something for your birthday, it belongs to you. It becomes yours. You could put, get out the Sharpie. You could write your name on it. Uh, We just a few weeks ago invested in some soccer balls for rec soccer this fall. And what did we do? We got out a Sharpie, because I know we're going to go over there, and there's a lot of soccer balls. And a lot of them don't have names. No, these are ours, right? Shannon. Put my phone number on there, just in case someone's really kind. Wants to call me, I'll go get the soccer ball. I want that ball back, right? I'm not going to lose it, right? You get something, it's yours. It's in your possession. As a Christian, God says over your life, you are my possession. You're mine. You belong to me completely, eternally. I will care for you. I will take care of you such that not even death itself can separate you from my love, my affection. 
He can say to those who belong to him, I should lose nothing of all that he, the Father, has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Of course, sometimes we lose our birthday gifts. But Jesus will never lose you. Comfort is this knowledge. The knowledge that comes from placing that greatest good, the promise of belonging completely in life and in death to God over against anything. That's where comfort is found. Even death itself. This is where solace can be found in times of grief. Why does Jesus pray for them? They belong to the Father. Second reason, they bring him glory. You see that there at the end of verse 10. What a statement. Jesus is glorified by his disciples. Just let that soak in. Jesus, the eternal son of God, is glorified by his disciples. By me, type sinners, who have been saved by his blood. So gracious is our Savior that that we, we, weak faith followers of Jesus, we bring Jesus glory. Though we're still sinners, we can still bring him glory. What a kindness, what a love. And then the third reason, beginning of verse 11. Third reason why Jesus prays for his disciples is he's about to leave them. We've been talking about this for three chapters now. He's going to the Father. His disciples will remain in the world. Remember all that Jesus has said. I'm leaving. Hatred from the world is coming. But the Spirit is too. They'll be left in the world, but not alone. This fact is reason for Jesus to pray for them, to pray for us. He knows your situation, friend. He knows your situation at home. He knows your situation in marriage, in your family. He knows your struggles. He knows your challenges at work. He knows you're in the world. He knows your context. He knows every detail that others may not even know. And he isn't indifferent to any of those things. He's not indifferent to you, not indifferent to your context, not indifferent to your challenges. He knows and he cares and he prays. What a comfort to know that your situation, that my situation as a disciple of Christ is a reason why Jesus prays. Well, what does Jesus pray? This is our third point. What does Jesus pray for them? See this, the end of verse 11 all the way down to verse 19. There's really just two requests. This is a longer section, lots of short phrases. We won't be able to comment on all of them, but I want you to see the two main requests. The first is a prayer to protect. Protect them. You see it there. Holy Father, beginning in the middle of verse 11, Holy Father, keep them, guard them, protect them in your name, which you have given me that they may be one, even as we are one. He addresses his father uniquely here as Holy Father. And of course, that word is actually kind of a sandwich to the end of his request. So if you jump down to verse 17 and verse 19, your English translation uses the word sanctify. But the root is the same. It's holy, right? So Holy Father, and at the end of the request, he's going to say, make them holy. Holy Father, make them holy. Make them godly. Make them like you. 
The heart of this first request is keep them. He says, I have kept them. I have guarded them. But, but I'm, I'm leaving. I'm going to you now. So keep them. Keep protecting them. Those who belong to the Father are protected by the Father. So Jesus asks for this protection. This protection cannot mean from death. It can't. I don't, I don't think. All the disciples died, and most of them as martyrs. So Jesus is praying for these 11 first and foremost, and then by extension for us. It can't mean protection from death. I think it has to mean something else. And I think Jesus tells us. Verses 14 through 16, we have the basis for this saying. And I think it's a good and helpful saying. I commend it to you. Christians are in the world, but not of the world. Maybe you've heard that. I think that's true. I think that's helpful. That distinction. Christians are in the world, but not of the world. Look down at verse 14. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because... They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Verse 16, they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Christians are in the world, they've not been taken out, but they're not of the world. Of course, every Christian was of the world. That's your testimony. I was of the world, you were of the world. But God saved, and yet we're still in the world, even after salvation. We've not been taken out of the world, but left in. Why is that? Why has he left us in the world, though we're no longer of the world? Well, we're getting ahead of ourselves, but he's going to talk about that. We've been given a mission. We've been given a task. But back to the question I raised and didn't answer. So, what is Jesus praying for when he asks the Father to protect them? If it's not from death, what is it? Protect my disciples, we could say, in the midst of the world, not by calling them out of the world. Protect them in the midst of the world from the evil one. Do you see that? This is the end of verse 15. From the evil one. And the evil one here, this is Satan himself, attacks disciples faith. And so Jesus prays specifically, I think likely here, with faith in mind. Protect them from Satan's attacks. Peter writes a letter and picks up on this theme. I think he's echoing Jesus. So listen again to 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 3, all the way down to verse 5. I'm going to jump and I'm going to comment a little bit here. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy... Do you remember what comes next? He has caused us to be born again first to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Then notice second, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. And now here's where we zoom in. This is where we pay attention. Kept in heaven for you. So you get the idea. You've been saved. You've been given an inheritance. That inheritance is being guarded. It's being protected. It's waiting for you. It's not in jeopardy. It's not going to corrupt. It's not going to be stolen. It is guaranteed. It is waiting. Then the hand goes up and says, that's all well and fine, but what if I'm not protected? What if the inheritance is good, but I fail to make it to the inheritance? What good is it then? Peter anticipates the objection, and let's keep reading. 
kept in heaven for you, who, verse 5, who by God's power are being guarded through faith. Do you see that? He keeps the inheritance and then he keeps the believers by protecting their faith. He ensures that we will persevere because he's doing the preserving. He's guarding our faith from Satan's attack. Will we waver? Maybe. Will we struggle? Yes. Will we fall away? No true disciple can. Why? God. So our confidence is not in ourselves. It's in him. He's keeping me. No one can pluck me from the Father's hand. My inheritance is guarded and I'm guarded. Why, why do I think I'm going to be faithful as a Christian for as many number of decades the Lord gives me if he doesn't come first? What kind of audacity would lead me to have that kind of confidence? God. He's faithful. Just as sure as I believe he has an inheritance waiting for me, I believe he's going to protect me and guard me and bring me safely home. He that began the good work, he's going to finish the good work. So you can live with confidence, humble confidence, not in yourselves, not in your past, not in your testimony, but in him, the one who's guarding you, the one who's protecting you, the one who's keeping you. We could put it this way. I read this this week. This is a paraphrase, but you're still a Christian because Jesus prayed for you. Guard them, protect, keep them from the evil one. What's the second request? The second request is sanctify them. Sanctify them. This is verses 17 through 19. Let's pick up in verse 17. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, this is the Father sending the Son, so I, the Son says, have sent them into the world. And for their sake, for the sake of the disciples, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified, consecrated, set apart in truth. He uses this word several times, sanctify. So he prays, request number one, protect them. Request number two, sanctify them. Sanctify them. Set them apart for service. And those who are set apart for service, fully set apart for service, will live distinct lives. They will be pure. They will be holy. So just like the priests were to be holy, they were set apart for that special job. A mountain could be holy in the Old Testament because it was set apart for God's presence, fully dedicated to his service. So I think when we understand holiness in that context, we realize that it's not just purity, but it's purity for a purpose, set apart for service, distinct for a mission. Do you see this? So we are to be saved in order to be sent. That's why verse 18 follows verse 17. Look at verse 17. Sanctify them and send them. Sanctify them and send them. Sanctification is always by means of the truth. Your word is truth, he says at the end of verse 17. And sanctification is always for a mission. This is verse 18. So we could ask it this way. Do you want to grow spiritually? If you're a Christian, I think you're going to say yes. Good. 
if you want to grow spiritually, the means of your growth is going to be the Word. It's going to be the truth of God's Word. So God's Word is God's way of growing God's people. God's word is God's way of growing God's people. So I, I like images. I was talking about this in Sunday school. And uh, I like the image of, of a stream. And it has banks. And it has a current. And this is the direction it always goes. And, and in that current is how God normally works. And he works through the word, prayer, and the gathered people. This is how he works. And, and we often sit on the sideline on the bank of the river and say, is God really at work? And the reality is, we just got to get in the way of grace. You got to get where he's promised to work, where he's already at work, by the word, through the spirit. So if we want to change, it's going to be through the means. And he's told us the means is the word. So we wade into the middle of the river so that our efforts are multiplied as he carries us along in sanctification. True disciples are people of the book. So how are you going to move into the way of grace this week? What effort are you going to make to increase your saturation in the word this week? We can get serving and we can get going but we shouldn't miss the progression of how Jesus prays for us. It isn't mission leads to sanctification, but sanctification by means of the word leads to mission. You see the ordering. So service is crucial. God will sanctify you through service, but his primary means is the word. So get in the river. Often, powerless, joyless, we're on the bank, not in the river, where his grace has promised to flow and change. Why? Why would you want to grow? What's the goal of being sanctified, of changing through the truth, through exposure to God's word? The goal, the end, is being equipped for God's service. It's not about you. It's not about me. It's not about us. It's not even about this church ultimately. It's, it's about him. It's about his glory. It's about his mission. So Jesus sends them and he sends us into the world. This will culminate in the Great Commission, the end of Matthew. Here in John's Gospel, it's chapter 20, verse 21. We already talked about that. So, so you, you, see, you see the simplicity of Jesus' words, as profound as they are. Those who were formerly of the world have been saved and set apart to accomplish his mission in the world. That's a summary of what he's saying. We're saved, dedicated to his mission in the world. So look again at verse 19. Jesus prays, I consecrate myself, but note the purpose. That my followers may be set apart to accomplish the mission I have sent and given them. So the, the goal of sanctification is to be sent, to be given a mission. It's not a holy huddle. It's to go. To go and tell the truth about Jesus, about salvation, about the gospel, about eternal life, about all these things that Jesus has talked about. 
He's talking to his disciples and he's praying where they can hear him, I think. And he wants them to know that. The goal of your sanctification, at least in part we could say, is mission. It's saved so that you might go. It's not an end to itself. It's not saved so that you might grow, so that you might grow, so that you might grow, but that you might grow and go. You see? The order of Jesus' requests matters. I'm going to have the men head to the back before we conclude here in preparation for the Lord's table. Friends, the mission Jesus has given us is not impossible. It's clear. It's compelling. It will be accomplished because it rests on what Jesus has already accomplished. Our mission is wholly reliant on his enabling grace, on his life-changing truth. Think of what Jesus has said already in John's gospel, especially in these last three chapters, but even going all the back, way back to chapter 1. Jesus is the truth, the way, the truth, and the life. Chapter 14, verse 6. He teaches the truth. He mediates the word as the word become flesh, John chapter 1. And now he sends the spirit of truth who will guide his disciples into all truth. That's been embodied for us now in God's word, the true word of God. So we as his disciples are people of the book, people of the truth, so that we might grow and so that we might go. So our mission, our ministry is one of proclamation, sharing the truth about what Jesus has accomplished, how sinners, every sinner may be saved. Jesus says the mission's going to be perilous. The world will oppose you. The mission is going to feel inevitable. It's going to feel fragile. It's going to feel like, is it going to happen? Is it working? Is he working? And Jesus prays, and he takes passivity, and he sets it aside, and he takes ease, and he sets it aside. He prays for protection, not deliverance. He prays for dedication, all in. The Father hears his prayer. The Father keeps his own. I love this verse of amazing grace. I changed a couple words. That's a big no-no for some of you, but I did change a couple words. We could sing it this way. The Lord has prayed such good for me. His word my hope secures. He will my shield and portion be as long as life endures. As the men come forward, I want to invite you to this table. This is a, a family meal, the communion table. It's a table of fellowship, a table of remembrance, a table of feasting. This is a, a family meal, so it doesn't, you don't have to be a member of this church, as we say each month, but we do ask that you be a member in good standing of a church that preaches the same gospel you heard here. So this is for our brothers and sisters in Christ, and we would welcome you to this table. As we gather around the table, we want to realize that this is both a solemn and a joyous occasion. So we want to spend time examining ourselves, looking in, but then we want to spend more time looking back to the cross and looking forward to glory. We want to reflect on all that Christ has accomplished. The mission has been completed, we could say. And so we rest in his finished work, even as we sustain our faith through feasting on it even now. Let me, let me pray, and then we'll distribute the elements 
uh, and partake together. Would you pray with me? Father God, we're so grateful that you have saved us, not as individuals, but into a family, into a body, into a building, into a flock. Thank you that you've given us your grace by your word, through your spirit. Thank you that you've given us this table, this time of remembering, this time of partaking, so that our strength, our faith might be strengthened even as we reflect on the mission that you did accomplish, even as you then sent us on mission. Father God, we pray for those here this morning who are outside of the family of faith, who are not yet your children. We pray that they would use this time to even now bow the knee, to repent and believe and trust in Christ, to come to him by faith. We pray for those who are weary. We pray that you would help them, my weary brothers and sisters, not to examine their faith, but to consider their Savior. Father, we're so grateful that a weak faith and a strong Savior saves. And so we believe, help our unbelief, strengthen us now. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.